Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, thank you for joining us today at the Biblical Foundations podcast. We continue our series through the Gospel of John with one of the most well-known miracles of Jesus recorded in all four canonical Gospels, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. So listen in now to episode 56, The Feeding of the 5,000. So as I mentioned, uh, looking at the setting of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, now verses 1 through 4 in chapter 6, uh, that event is already narrated in all three synoptic Gospels. Matthew 14, uh, 13 to 21, Mark 6, 32 to 44, and Luke 9, 10 to 17. And then, interestingly, in addition, you have a so-called doublet. Uh, Matthew and Mark also record Jesus' feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew 15 and Mark 8. Now, coming, uh, just looking at, at the feeding of the 5,000, the details cohere very closely in all four Gospels. And, you know, sometimes people exaggerate the way in which the three Gospels and then John are different. And the fact is that in many ways, um, you know, they're, they're closer to each other than, you know, they are different. I was talking with someone over break about the Sabbath controversy that I talked about, you know, according to John in chapter 5, and then it, it, it erupts again in John chapter 9. Well, when you look at the, at the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see that they feature that Sabbath controversy as well. So again, there's a similarity between all four Gospels. They may not all record the exact same events, you know, and, and give the same exact uh, perspective, but, but the issues uh, are, you know, what critical scholars might call multiply attested in, in all four Gospels. And so the details are uh, in agreement. You have 5,000 men plus women and children. You have five loaves and two fish. And you have the 12 baskets full of leftovers. And those are obviously the important details that certainly eyewitnesses would remember. And yet, um, John supplements the presentations that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which vary to just a minor degree in some significant ways. First of all, only John features specific disciples by name. Very interesting. The other Gospels just refer globally to the disciples. But John has Philip and Andrew specifically, maybe because they were from nearby Bethsaida. Um, they would have known, you know, where he could buy bread, perhaps. Uh, even more importantly, only John includes the ensuing bread of life discourse. And I mentioned earlier that that bread of life discourse is like almost triple as long as the actual uh, feeding narrative. Um, and, of course, in that discourse, uh, John unpacks the Christological significance of the feeding and shows how Jesus, in his essence, embodies the sign. He is the bread. He doesn't just give the bread or multiply loaves. Um, very almost, you might say, not just theological, almost philosophical in a way. Um, and so he shows how Jesus 
in his essence, embodies the sign that he's just provided. He's the living bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world. I'll say more about this in a minute. Um, so as we've seen in the first uh, sign in, in the festival cycle, the healing of a layman, in chapter 5, John first sets the stage. Somewhat puzzlingly, John writes, after this, meaning the Sabbath controversy in the previous chapter, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, verse 1. Fascinating. Several aspects of that verse. Now, I said somewhat puzzlingly because the previous chapter ends with Jesus being in Jerusalem, right? And so the statement, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, seems to presuppose the readers know he'd been previously already on the Sea of Galilee already. There's what you might call a narrative gap or jump. Now, of course, uh, German liberal scholars, led by famous Rudolf Boltmann, have exploited this kind of gap and proposed a rearrangement theory. They said, actually, if you rearrange chapters 5 and 6, then this apparent incongruence disappears. Because Jesus is already in Galilee at the end of chapter 4. If you jump straight from chapter 4 to chapter 6, he's still in Galilee. And then afterwards, um, in chapter 5, you know, he is in Jerusalem. Um, very ingenious. Problem is there's zero textual support. We don't have any manuscripts that read that way. Uh, but I remember when at first, as a, I think a doctoral student picked up Boltmann's famous John commentary, probably the most famous in, in, in the 20th century. Um, it's very confusing because I was thinking, where's chapter 5? He jumps straight from chapter 4 to chapter 6. So he writes the commentary based on uh, his, uh, not transposition theory, his rearrangement theory. So, you know, he's rearranging the gospel in keeping with uh, the fact that he thinks that there's some sort of a incongruity. Scholars call that aporia you know, an apparent seam where John might have used sources rather clumsily, uh, except, of course, if you're smart enough, like a German liberal a critical scholar might be, you know, the correct John's clumsy use of sources. You can see I'm a little bit facetious here, but uh, I'm, I have German background as well, so I guess I can get away with that. Um, but you, you see what those scholars are arguing. There's this gap here. Uh, but when you look a little more closely, this is merely one of multiple instances in John's gospel where the evangelist implies movement on Jesus' part, but doesn't explicitly narrate it. And one of my uh, former students, later became a colleague at a um, previous institution, Scott Kellum, he actually wrote his doctoral dissertation uh, on this very topic of implied movement in John's gospel. Uh, it's a monograph called The Unity of the Farewell Discourse, The Literary Integrity of John 13 to 16. And it's primarily on that famous Johanna Naporia at the end of John 14, John 14, 31, where Jesus says, come, let's go. But then they don't go anywhere until chapter 18, verse 1. 
And so again, you know, there might be some implied movement there as well. Um, and again, I would just argue that uh, John simply expects his readers to have little difficulty in, figuring, in, in filling in the relevant information. Well, if the previous chapter ends with Jesus being uh, in um, uh, Jerusalem, and then here he is in Galilee, he must have traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee, right? Not a very big deal. Now, um, moving on to another tidbit in that uh, initial reference, John 6, 1, in the earlier Gospels, as you know, that body of water is always identified as the Sea of Galilee. Even though, of course, if you've been there, and even if you haven't, you know, it's really just a large lake. It's not an actual sea or ocean. Uh, but in John's gospel, the same lake is twice referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. I think this is one of several clues in John's narrative that his gospel was written later than the other gospels. Uh, another one, by the way, might be the absence of reference to the Sadducees. Sadducees are not mentioned in John, presumably because they ceased to exist in the year 70 AD. Um, so, uh, of course, what we know is Tiberias uh, was the preeminent city on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, named after the Roman emperor Tiberius, uh, who followed, of course, uh, Emperor Augustus. Uh, and was the emperor when, when, when Jesus, uh, uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry. So apparently what happened is that city was renamed to Tiberias, and then in the second half of the second century, gradually the name of the city was transferred to the name of the lake. So it's referred to no longer as the Sea of Galilee, but the Sea of Tiberias. So interestingly, in chapter 6, verse 1, John says, or refers to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, right? To people who needed to be told that this is really the same body of water. But then later at the end of the gospel, in chapter 21, verse 1, he refers simply to the Sea of Tiberias, no longer Sea of Galilee, right? Um, and so you see where I'm going with this. This would be another indication that this is written a little bit later at a time when people knew that the Sea of Galilee, now by a different name, you know, named after the, the Roman emperor. Um, Jesus' presence in Galilee at Passover is part of, still part of this oscillating pattern that we've seen of Jesus' movements from Galilee to Jerusalem and back to Galilee. We've seen that in the, in the Cana cycle where Jesus went from Galilee to Jerusalem and then back to Galilee. So uh, this is very interesting because what you see in John is that he supplements the synoptic geographical pattern because remember in the synoptics, developed that in the, the Jesus of the Gospels, uh, you basically have a more linear progression, right? Where you see Jesus starting out in Galilee, multiple cycles of ministry, three or four typically, and then he gradually, in Luke in particular, you have this extended travel narrative, spans 10 or 11 chapters, Luke 9 to 19. And then so almost agonizingly, right, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And then he finally arrives and is crucified. So, so in the synoptics, you have this, this um, unanimous pattern from Galilee to Jerusalem. Well, John, on the other hand, 
has this oscillating pattern from Galilee to Jerusalem, back to Galilee, and so forth, right, all the way through. Um, again, you know, I think it's not so much that John is correcting the other Gospels as he's supplementing them. You know, assuming he knew that pattern, which I think he did, I think it's very deliberate that he shows that reading the synoptics, you might almost get the impression that Jesus never went to Jerusalem until the end. Well, not true. Like any good, pious Jew, he would have made every effort to be in Jerusalem for some of the major festivals. For whatever reason, in this case, he stays behind in Galilee, interestingly enough. But uh, John mentions three Passovers that Jesus attended. And the first one in chapter 2, and of course the last one, chapter 12, Jesus was in Jerusalem, right? So this is the middle one where he stayed behind in Galilee. Very fascinating. I remember when I first studied John's gospel in greater depth, I just copied a map and then manually tracked Jesus' movement, you know, in John's gospel from all the, the geographical references. I think that's a fascinating exercise. Um, all right, so uh, in verse 2 then, uh, John observes that a large crowd was following Jesus because they had seen his previous signs on the sick, presumably including the sign that has just been narrated in the previous chapter, the healing of the lame man. Uh, so in this way, jo John shows an organic connection between those first two signs of Jesus in the festival cycle. It's another uh, storytelling feature I love about John's gospel that he often helps you connect events. So for example, you know, in Nicodemus's case, he would say, remember, he was the one who first came to Jesus by night. Or in the case of the beloved disciple, he would say, remember, he was the one who leaned against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. So he has this, these back references that, that uh, helps the reader, you know, in what is called Johanna and Asides, uh, many of those uh, internal connections. Uh, now, of course, uh, the sign in chapter 5 was a healing miracle. This sign involves Jesus' miraculous ability to multiply food. Um, and by the way, the word sign is a Johannine term. Jesus never uses the word sign for himself. He just refers to everything he does as his work. He's just going to work, right? For him, it's all, you know, just what he does. Uh, it's just John labels it sign because he wants to, to tease out the messianic significance of certain selected, you know, uh, acts of, of, of John. And by the way, also a sign is not just something Jesus says. It's something that he actually does. And he does publicly, as we'll see in a minute. So at the very outset, verse 3, Jesus is shown to ascend a mountain which may be reminiscent of Moses, especially because there's many other mosaic references, uh, in particular in this chapter, right? Uh, Moses gave you the manna in the wilderness and so forth. So here he is ascending a mountain. Now, John doesn't include the Sermon on the Mount, right? But he shows Jesus ascending a mountain at the outset of this particular feeding. Um, now, as we've seen in chapter 5, very interesting, with regard to the Sabbath, John mentions only now that it was the Passover. You know, she doesn't start out there in verse 1. He mentions it now in verse 3. And as I said, this is now the second Passover narrated in this gospel. 
after Jesus' clearing of the temple and encounter with Nicodemus the previous years. A whole year has passed, and the readers would understand that. Um, and, of course, remember, this is part of a festival cycle. So John continues to use a reference to a given festival, in this case, Passover, as a structural marker to show that Jesus fulfilled the entire Jewish festival calendar. Of course, Paul later, um, I think in 1 Corinthians, said that Jesus, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And you see a lot of Passover uh, references in John later on surrounding the crucifixion. Uh, but here, of course, um, it's epitomized in, in the feeding uh, miracle. Uh, just like Jesus was greater than Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. We've already seen some of that in the Cana cycle. Um, and just like he was greater than Moses and the signs and wonders that Moses performed during the Exodus, uh, John's overarching point is he's greater than all the Jewish festivals. So, you know, like E. Carson believes, and I tend to agree, most likely, kind of like Matthew, John was written primarily to unbelieving Jews and so-called proselytes, people who might already have a certain affinity with Jewish worship, to show them that it's a logical next step. If you already believe in in the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment. And so you ought to put your faith in Jesus, especially at a time, incidentally, when the temple no longer stood but had been destroyed. That's one other critical difference between the other Gospels and John, right? The other Gospels were most likely written prior to the destruction of the temple. John wrote after the destruction of the temple. And I think that makes all the difference. Written a, a piece on, on this as well, the destruction of a temple and the composition of John's gospel, kind of show a connection between the two. In other words, my argument there being that John wrote his gospel, at least in part, to show that Jesus was the replacement of the now destroyed temple, spiritually speaking. All right, so then uh, looking at the actual feeding, uh, verses 5 through 15. One interesting difference, in chapter 5, of course, Jesus performed the healing all by himself. But now we see Jesus' disciples are integrally involved. Um, and, of course, they were last mentioned in the story of a Samaritan woman. Remember, again, even there, went into town to buy supplies and then came back at the end of that conversation. So that, that was the last reference to them. And uh, this is also... Uh, very coherent with the way the synoptics present the disciples, that they were um, helping in the miracles, and, and Jesus deliberately involved them, uh, which again, I, I did some, some work in first century rabbi-student relationships. And it's very typical for first century Jewish rabbis to involve their, uh, their disciples, whether, yeah, to send them off to buy groceries or, or to just help with various, you know, preparations, uh, you know, as, as kind of on-the-job training, if you will. And so Jesus here does just that. Um, he uh, is shown to confer with Philip and Andrew. And, you know, interestingly, Andrew here, as earlier in the gospel, is referred to as Simon Peter's brother, just like Jude is, you know, 
James's little brother and so forth. So, so you have this, uh, again, interesting connection there uh, with Andrew having already been mentioned um, as the one who brought Peter to Jesus in 140. Um, so he's mentioned. Um, and Andrew, in turn, uh, mentions to Jesus a boy with five loaves and two fish, but, of course, holds out little hope that these will go very far, feeding such a large number of people. Um, and kind of similar to the, the previous chapter, Jesus is rather matter-of-factly. There's so much restraint in, in the way John tells that amazing story. He simply instructs the, uh, his disciples to have people sit down, um, just as he simply told the man in the previous chapter to get up and walk. Uh, again, this is just ordinary day at the office for Jesus, right? Um, he gives thanks, which interestingly is this Greek word, eucharisteo, which later had those theological overtones, you know, the Eucharist. But I actually take a more anti-sacramental position here. If you read Roman Catholic commentators like Raymond Brown or Rudolf Schnackenberg, I mean, they see this is all about the Lord's Supper or the, you know, the Eucharist as they would uh, call it. I think this is simply, uh, you know, anachronistic to read that in uh, through um, the Greek word eucharisteo or other means. So Jesus prays um, as a head of the household typically would, you know, in the first century Judaism, and then distributes the bread and fish, again, very normal, and everyone ate till they had enough. Verse 11. Now, when the disciples gather the leftovers, they fill as many as 12 baskets. I assume you just everyone took one and went around and gathered the leftover, one per disciple. Um, and then people's responses recorded by John as follows in verse 14. Um, when the people saw the sign that he had done, see the specific label sign here, right? Uh, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So again, you think just like with Nicodemus, right? I mean, that seems to be a kind of flattering compliment. Well, uh, it's, uh, Jesus was a lot more than that. Uh, what you see is that, uh, again, you have this inclusio because uh, verse 2 already talks about Jesus' sign. And in verse 14, reiterates that this was a sign. So you see the reference to to the feeding being a sign, brackets that entire um, narrative from verses 1 to 15. The reference to the prophet, of course, you recognize as an allusion to the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18. Um, of course, Jesus has this supernatural perception that people are about to compel him to be their king so he again withdraws to the mountain. Uh, verse 15 was mentioned in verse 3. So we see here that the crowd is the physical beneficiary of Jesus' miracle. They all eat and have enough for the day, but they, they don't grasp who Jesus truly is uh, spiritually. And so for John, and he drives that point home over against the other Gospels, that makes all the difference. If you just eat the bread, but don't take the logical next step to worship Jesus and to follow him, um, the purpose of a sign has not been accomplished. Instead, they think of Jesus as a national deliverer. 
um, which explains why Jesus withdraws, because he does not want to be co-opted for people's political agenda. And maybe some of us today could learn a lesson from that. Uh, I'm not supposed to talk about sports or politics, but that's the closest I'll come, just because it's in the text. <laughs> As he will later tell Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. As in Matthew and Mark, though not in Luke, interestingly, the account of the feeding of the 5,000 is then linked and followed with the narrative of Jesus walking on the water. Now, many commentators and study Bibles identify the walking on the water as a Johannine sign. It's quite typical. In my, in my study, they would not recognize the temple cleansing as a sign, but instead, um, the walking on the water would be that seventh sign. There's wide agreement on the other six, uh, mercifully. So that is just a one sign that's uh, open to debate. Now, um, I would argue that the walking on the water is nowhere in John identified as a sign unlike, as we've just seen, the healing of a lame man or the feeding of a multitude's is in verses 2 and 14. So I believe that Jesus walking in the water is a miracle, but it's not a sign. I know that's maybe a little bit complicated. It's a miracle in a synoptic sense in that Jesus does something truly that's superhuman, right? He's walking on water. But I think for John, not everything that is superhuman is a sign. Um, and I think part of that is not only that it's identified as such, how else would we really know that John you know, considers it as such, but also it is a private manifestation of Jesus to his disciples and all the other undisputed signs are public in nature. Because ultimately, as we see at the end of Chapter 12, the purpose was to commend Jesus as the Messiah to the Jewish people. Um, so there's this public purpose. And admittedly, the only partial exception to that would be the first one, the turning of water into wine, which is kind of behind the scenes. But Jesus, hey, he's just getting started. <laughs> okay, so this was, there were different reasons why that sign was kind of partially private, even though, I mean, people behind the scenes knew what had happened, and John, of course, tells it to the world. Um, and so, rather than, I'm arguing, John interposing this other sign after it's just recorded the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, he is supplementing the account of the feeding of the multitude with the bread of life discourse, we explains, where he explains the significance of the feeding. Does that make sense? In that sense, it's almost like, uh, labeling the walking on the waters as I will interrupt. I mean, he's still going to talk about, you know, the previous sign. I think John simply here incorporates the uh, walking on the water because he's traditionally linked with the feeding in Matthew and Mark. He just keeps it there. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. 
Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations Podcast.